Kula is not a CEE or give back, save the poor type of platform. Um, we believe that our farmers have an actual business case. When we think about the future of the African continent, when we think about the prospects of this place, it's hard to imagine a more challenging space or bigger opportunity for that matter than education. One of my guests on the show today is Josh Adler, who's the Vice President of Growth and Entrepreneurship at the African Leadership Academy. The ALA is an absolutely remarkable program. It's a, it's a school, a, a physical compounded this amazing campus in the middle of Randburg where the continent's top high potential leaders are sourced and brought into a sort of finishing school environment 130 of them at a time every year are brought into this remarkable space to receive instruction a customized curriculum mentorship and learning that is enviable uh, of any school I would imagine of, of its ilk anywhere in the world and one of Josh's key projects is the Enzisha Prize. The Enzisha Prize is designed to fast track very young entrepreneurs from around the continent in a bootcamp style environment, again with a strong emphasis on mentorship and co-learning and coaching. And one of the stars to come out of the Enzisha Fellowship recently is a young gentleman by the name of Caridas Chincholo, who is the CEO, describes himself as an agripreneur, the CEO of a business called Kula. Kula.co.za, which is a marketplace play that connects farmers within buyers and uh, distributors and processes, but by disintermediating some of the complexity in the existing market. They were both kind enough to offer me some time to talk through the opportunities of education and entrepreneurship on the continent. I loved recording this show. I'm sure you'll love it as much as I did. And if you do, please feel free to share it with your network. All right, so Josh, uh, Caridas, just wanted to say thanks so much, guys, for taking time out to join me on the show. Really looking forward to this one. This is the first time I have two guests, so this is a new experience for me. But Josh, the first time that I experienced the African Leadership Academy, I was shocked. I walked into this remarkable campus, this compound in the middle of central Randburg and couldn't, couldn't believe what I was witnessing. So few People in my network, in my world, which is tragic, understand the work of the Academy and the impact that it's had. How do you introduce people to it if they've never heard of the Academy before? Oh, I love the question. And thanks for hosting us on the show. Sure, man. The best way, I think, to talk about ALA for people who don't know about it is to simply state what it does, which yeah. is to identify, develop and connect the next generation of Africa's leaders. What I think, if you peel the onion back a little bit, is... At its heart, the tool through which we chose to effect leadership change was to say the best tool for that is a school. Mm. If you want to have sort of a 50 to 100 year plan where you're saying we're in a leadership crisis globally, Africa is no different. Mm. How can you intervene over the long term uh, in that opportunity challenge question to find high potential people while they're still in their teens mm. and um, bring them together, facilitate their learning, set them up for the, the most possible success and impact they can have, then that was the kind of grounding of it. But it's a really big nonprofit institution or social enterprise now sure. of which only a part is the school. We now have many more people 
beyond their formative years of the academy. Mm. And we have all sorts of programs to continue their acceleration and development while they're older. So it's almost like a Hogwartsy type thing where there's the school at the top and there's this rabbit warren of okay, activity wow. and programming. The first question, I guess, for people that, I mean, it sounds incredible, right? That That is, everybody would agree that that's a problem. Everybody would agree that that's a feasible solution. But to be an authentically African academy, you have to source talent from every one of our very complex, you know, the, this this continent that is hugely diverse and multifaceted. How do you do that? How do you identify talented, high potential leaders at such a young age? There's no one answer to that. Mm. We have a very multi-channel, for lack of a better term, approach. Mm. So part of it is, I think, an aggressive marketing sort of operation. Sure. And we do a lot of reach in that way. Mm. But the most important one is leveraging networks that are very word of mouth. Yeah. And essentially, you're saying to every teacher, other school, um, parent, if you know of a young person who is moving really rapidly in their leadership potential, and you think that where they could be better served by an organization like ALA, mm. then you should get them to apply. Mm. So the majority of the talent we find is through nominations and networks. Mm. And it's not only individuals, they're organizations. So for example, nonprofits like UNICEF or the Red Cross, those sorts of people are big feeders yeah. for us. And we have about 2000 partners that help us look for talent. That's amazing. Caridas, can you tell me about your first exposure or experience of the academy or the programs that the academy supports? Yeah, so I think my relationship with ALA is mainly through Anzisha, yes. which is uh, basically a, pro a program for um, young entrepreneurs across the African continent who have ideas that basically are gearing up to solve some of the continent's um, big, big, big problems. So yeah. I think my first encounter with ALA was mainly through Anzisha. I think I first saw it in the news and then I did some reading up about it and I really identified with their values. I really identified with their approach towards uh, supporting young entrepreneurs um, mm -hmm leaving young entrepreneurs and backing young entrepreneurs. I think even at the time that I applied, they were very um, yeah, explicit about the fact that they are for young entrepreneurs. I think the yes. cutoff age was about 21 or something. Wow. I think yeah. I was about, about 20. So it's been a couple of years that they've been sort of supporting my journey um, and not only financial support, uh, which has occurred here and there, but pretty much just being there and guiding and helping me navigate through my entrepreneurial journey from bootstrap businesses to what is now um, a high growth startup that I'm running at the moment. And I think even when I applied, I was running a textile business, it was a clothing business at the time. Oh, wow. So I think, yeah, so they have been very interested in me as a person, as opposed mm. to just um, the business itself, which is what you get with a lot of programs. Yeah. Look, I think you're being humble. Your high growth startup is a is a business that's absolutely flying at the moment, and uh, uh, you know I, I don't know if that's circumstantial because of of the dire need uh, in, in you know in the marketplace for the provision that you. And I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about exactly what you do in a second. But how important was yeah. the fellowship to the success of Cooler today? 
I think it wasn't only the fellowship. I think sure. it's, it's you need an ecosystem that supported me. And I think Anzisha has been one of the key players that has supported yeah. um, the growth of Kula at the moment. And I think more than anything is basically, I think one of the things that I took away from the experience with the Anzisha program is that I got to spend time with different entrepreneurs from across the continent. I think we spent about two weeks mm. and I understood that a lot of the problems that they were facing were similar problems to what we are facing. And I think the one key role that it played, it helped sort of shape some of my thinking around not viewing Africa's problems as problems per se, mm. but more so viewing them as opportunities. And I think that sort of um, anchoring towards that thinking and just encouraging entrepreneurship as a whole. And I remember around that time, um, I'd recently dropped out from UCT. So everyone mm. was saying, what the heck have you done? You just messed up your life and all of that. Mm. So it was good to have organizations like uh, Anzisha and LA who were basically uh, believing in my ideas and sort of backing my ideas, but very much so looking at them from an African perspective and, and not only from a South African perspective. Amazing. I mean, that must have taken some, it's a very bold decision. It must have taken some guts to do that. What? <laughs> <laughs> what was the root of your conviction? What what made you feel that that was the right decision? I, I'm assuming you still feel like it was the right decision, very much so. But what was it that kind of informed that decision at the time? I think it was a lot of things. I think it was a lot of things. I think one of them was I had a friend who was a, quite a close friend of mine um, at, at, at Varsity. Okay, so the first one is that we started our business in first year. Mm. And our first business, we ran it for a while. The business grew. We started getting some clients. And then it got to a point where you can't tell a client that you can't deliver on what you promised because you have a test or because <laughs> sure. you have an exam or because you, had a, you have a tutorial. So a lot of the time I started finding myself having to choose between a test or a client. And 100% of the time I would choose a client. So that was one part yeah. that the pressure was hectic. And in terms of making the actual decision, the way we viewed it, we didn't put too much pressure on ourselves. Mm. We pretty much said that, all we need is one year to see if this entrepreneurship thing is real or not. Mm. So if we go to Joburg for one year, because the bulk of our clients were in Joburg, and if it doesn't work out, we come back to Varsity, would be as good as someone who either failed a whole year course or someone who's doing an extended program. And looking at the passion that we had and how the business was growing, we felt that that, that, that was a risk um, worth, yeah, that was a risk worth taking as well. So I think those are sort of some of the, the main um, driving forces around that, but mm. also being able to see the impact. I think with the clothing company at the time, we were employing about 15 people, you know, and those were people's mothers, uh, people's parents. Yeah. And I felt that they had a, and they were putting food on the table because of the business that I was running. And I could not, not pay salaries because I c we couldn't deliver to a client because uh, I had an exam or I had a test, you know? Mm. So I think that, that impact, that we were, that I was making sort of was like a, a, a drug for me, uh, which I still sure. run yeah. quite high on, just being able to see that broad impact. Um, and over time, being able to see the, the growth of the business. And I weighed employment versus building my, my own thing. And mm. it just made a lot more sense. And I, I found, yeah, I found my passion, basically. Dude, that's an astonishing story. That's a really great story. Thank you. And I'm, we're going to get more into the detail of it now, because I think what you're building yeah. is, is so well-timed and, and so pertinent. Josh, the, the academy, as you said, is, is the bedrock to solving this very complex issue, but there's also a number of different programs, the proverbial rabbit warren that you spoke about around it. How many students does the academy take in and from what age? And then how do you, how do you bleed into or kind of connect with the other programs that, that sit around the academy from there? 
So we take 130 students a year mm-hmm. for a two-year program. And essentially, it's almost like a finishing school, if you think about it. You come to finish high school yeah. plus an extra year at ALA. Got you. So it's a very big decision to come to ALA because you have to kind of leave just before you're about to graduate. Sure. All your friends and whatever trajectory you're on wow. make a very intentional decision to leave that life or path. Come to ALA, probably take a step back or sideways because now you're with peers who are probably stronger or differently strong, which is uncomfortable. So you're Uh, a talented, young, high potential leader in Ethiopia and you hear about ALA and you have to essentially uproot. What are you in grade nine or grade 10 and you uproot and... Yeah, it it all depends on the geography, right? So um, for example, in Nigeria, kids finish high school much younger. Mm -hmm. In South Africa, we finish later. So the the decisions are different. But So there are 260 students on campus in any given year. um, And we try to ensure that there are 40 plus countries represented at any given time. And of course, there's the entire socioeconomic sort of uh, spectrum in that. And we very intentionally design the class. We get thousands of applications a year. Mm -hmm. We essentially choose or design a class of leaders that have all these different interests, backgrounds, Mm. geographies, economic status within that class. Diversity, not just in kind of representation and demographics, but in thinking and interests and Correct, because diversity is the biggest teacher. Yeah, sure. So no matter what we do, the campus is the teacher, the community is the teacher, mm. and it's in the conversations you have about mm. the things you learn that is where the pennies drop and you start to figure out who you are and how you choose to behave in the world that you see. And, that, and Caritas would have had an example experience or a smaller experience of that mm. by coming to the academy for two weeks. He would have interacted with that community of 260 at mm. the time mm. as a fellow, mm. but then spent a deeper or has had deeper engagement with about 15 other very young entrepreneurs. And that's the Nzisha Fellowship. Correct. I think the, the way it relates to other programs is essentially the broad category of it is transitions. There's this traditional view of what you transition to post-school. Mm. And we know that that's failing. Mm. Yeah. There's this expectation that you transition from school to university and then to work. Yeah. And that's breaking everywhere. We also believe you have to play two games at the same time. You have to play the game that exists. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pressure and there is a lot of success to be found in that traditional path, but not for everybody. Sure. But you've got to aggressively pursue and enable other kinds of pathways. Yeah. Some people will be like Caritas who will do entrepreneurship first. Yeah. Some people will do traditional careers first. Some people will do all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. So all of our secondary programs are around transitions. Okay. Um, Facilitating mobility into other... Correct. Yeah. And we increasingly have a sector view on that. So Mm. we work backwards, essentially. Africa is the ultimate client for the academy's network, which is the postgraduate network. That network has to serve Africa's needs as best as possible. What are the skills? Which are the sectors that are where the disruption or change or acceleration needs to happen? And that network needs to solve Africa's problems. Mm. But then the school needs to help kids figure out where in that network they best fit. Mm. And then Mm. you work all the way backwards to the selection of those 130 students, as well as people for programs like the one Caritas was on. Amazing. And that's how we design our classes. So I'm sure there's, you know, there's absolute gold in the alumni networks and the kind of long tail of everybody going out into the world and creating value and what you're learning from their journeys, but also some of the research that I'm sure that you're gathering together. And I know you've 
just released a um, a really interesting piece of research around very young entrepreneurs. And I, I want to get to that, but I, I carried this. I wonder if we could jump back to you quickly, because I watched a video that spoke about, you know, kind of your formative years early on taking on the responsibility to say like, I can, I can create real value. I've just got to find, as you said earlier on the right opportunities to leverage the idea for cooler as it exists today, wasn't really where you started, right? You started with other value creation opportunities and then that sort of evolved and, and grew out of that. Can you talk me through a little bit of that, that sort of process? Yeah. So I think uh, with cooler, it's been quite a journey, but I think at the crux of it, we are solving a major um, African problem around food security and around food in general, around the fact that you've got um, over 60% of the world's arable land being on our continent. You've got more than half the population consisting of emerging or small-scale farmers, yet we are still importing $40 billion plus of food we could be producing ourselves. At the crux of it, that's that. And that's sort of the problem that we've targeted. And then if you zoom into that, there's experience for um, the emerging farmer or possibly even also for the commercial farmer and how difficult it is for them to be able to sell food um, or basically for them to be able to sell their products. You find that the spinach that you buy at Willie's that's chopped for 36 rand, the farmer would have gotten about 150 or 250 mm. for that particular spinach. And even on that, they have to pay high fees. They pay 7.5% to a market agent. They pay 5% to, to the municipal infrastructure. And then over and above that, the stuff is sold on consignment. It's a whole messy process in terms of how farmers actually have to sell their products. And it doesn't make business sense because the farmer takes the highest risk. You know, they take the risk of planting, the risk of hail, the risk of everything that could go wrong. Sure, but sure. They, actually, they actually benefit the least in the value chain. And Kula sort of comes in and says, there is actually a proposition to basically connect these emerging farmers and these commercial farmers directly with the with the formal marketplace. And that was where we started. But over time, we realized that in agriculture, as with other problems in Africa, you can't solve problems in isolation. A lot of these problems are interlinked. You can't solve mm. the marketplace problem unless you solve the logistics problem. Sure. And you can't solve a farmer growing unless you solve the funding problem. And hence, over time, we've had to strengthen our position in the market by coming in with an ecosystem approach. Mm. And the whole premise of what that we've built Kula on is that Kula is not a, for lack of a better word, uh, a BE or give back, save the poor type of, of platform. Um, sure. We believe that our farmers have an actual business case and a commercial value proposition for our clients yes. and for our buyers because their product ends up on the buyer's shelves either way. It's just that there's five middlemen that sit between the farmer and the end buyer. And essentially, we, we're cutting that and we're connecting the farmer directly to the end buyer, therefore creating proper value for the farmer. To put it in simpler terms, what Uber did for cars is what we want to do almost for land. So Uber says... You can buy a Toyota Corolla that you will pay 4.5 a month to for, to a bank. But if you put it on Uber and it's it's whatever, it's yeah, it's on the platform, it can make you 25K to 35K a month. So we wanted to put a price on how much uh, you can make basically on a hectare of land over time and give African young people an option outside even normal employment to know that if actually I went home and we started using the piece of land that we have, which a lot of people do have, this is what we could potentially make on a hectare on Kula. Same way with Airbnb, this is what you could make by renting out your back room. And we want to make yes. the case for land and we want to make the case for agriculture as 
the prime competitive advantage for the continent. And we need to basically start producing our own food and we need to even start processing our own food and being able to, to send it abroad as well. And that's sort of the case that Kuta is, is trying to build. And it's important that the market understands that we are not building a help the poor guys, save the poor guy. I think there's yes, a commercial yes. value. It makes business sense to buy from these guys. And that's why we partnered with some of the biggest names. Yeah, like we're working with Imperial Logistics. We're working with um, the biggest logistics company, the biggest um, input supply company. We're working with the biggest agribank in the continent. And with all these partners, we're working on this pilot. And we're supplying some of the big retailers already. And we're proving this in our pilot. Um, and within 12 to 18 months, we're looking at going properly into market because with the marketplace, you need to build critical mass first before you start making too much noise and going fully live. So that's sort of the problem that we're solving and it speaks to food security. And I think even around Anzisha and around young entrepreneurs, um, that's how we need to start thinking in terms of the businesses that we're starting. We need to be starting mm. businesses that are solving the, the major problems that Africa has around education, around I mean, there's a whole lot of issues that Africa is facing. And I think when you build a value proposition around those problems, you, you're able to come up with a more sustainable solution than donations or or basically just asking for money. And I think that's the challenge to Africa's young people. And my thing is always that if we don't solve these problems, external parties from other countries are going to come in and they're going to solve our problems. And yeah. we'll continue. Yeah, we create a vacuum, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we create a vacuum. They see the opportunity. I mean, yeah, they've saturated the bulk of the world market. And now Africa is their new frontier that's exciting, even for. European and American companies, and they'll come in and they'll solve our problems. And there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, we end up becoming consumers in our own continent, you know, and we need to start seeing sure. our problems as opportunities. And we need to solve the big problems. We don't need another app that tells you where to find your cat or where, mm -hmm. I don't know, something like that. We've got really, really big problems in the continent, and we need to see those as opportunities. And I think what I've learned from the Anzisha experience is, is basically to have that outlook as well, to see Africa's problems as actual opportunities and agriculture is broken, but we've managed to build yeah. a, a business proposition around that, that makes sense for the buyer, that makes sense for the farmer. And yeah, and I think that's sort of what we've done with Kula and we've been growing quite significantly over the last couple of years. We've almost been minimum quadrupling every six months Jeez. in terms of the trade we've been doing, in terms of the team. We did a seed A round Last year, we actually self-funded for quite some time just from mm. revenues. And then we did a seed A round towards the end of last year. And then we're closing off our seed round hopefully this month. And that just speaks to the fact that we need to be solving these major problems and building a value proposition around that. So, yeah, I think that's roughly a snapshot of the cooler story. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And you've, you've probably listed five or six things that I'd love to uh, extrapolate in detail. You know, yours is fundamentally a, a disintermediation play, as you said, an Uber-like play, although, you know, yours has got... Uh, what's unique about the way that you've implemented the solution is that, you know, you've 
accounted for externalities as well. You've accounted for the other impacts in the ecosystem. And so you aren't creating more problems than you're fixing, which we see a lot of other big disintermediation plays doing. Obviously, disintermediation plays rely very heavily on technology and, and on infrastructure. And that's a core part of your business, right? You've you won a, uh, an award for your app and you've been recognized for your excellence in, in technological innovation. And I'd argue yep. that maybe even like 10 years ago, this kind of play would have been much more difficult if not for the, you know, the mobile devices and the connectivity that, that you're able to leverage. How important uh, is technology in your business and to the future of your business, but more specifically for you personally? Because I imagine that it's very difficult to do this and do it effectively unless you personally have got a good grasp on digital innovation and digital disruption. How do you foster that knowledge and how do you grow that knowledge? Yeah, I think technology is incredibly important and it's incredible. It's incredibly important for one key word, which is scale. You know, mm-hmm. with technology, you are, you are able to impact way more people in a very short space of time and with lesser physical resources per se. So yeah. I think it's, 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 it's super important. And the role that mobile adoption has played for us has been enormous because as mm-hmm. you can imagine, the average farmer is a relatively older person. And when, even yeah. when we started the business, we were worried that are these yeah. people even going to use an app, you know, even though the business model made sense. But one thing that we figured out is that WhatsApp actually did a lot of the hard uh, nine yards for us yeah. because the WhatsApp adoption sort of forced a lot of people's grandmas and moms and dads. I'm sure Into you guys technology. are. Yeah. So a lot yeah. of dads have switched over to WhatsApp and that WhatsApp adoption has almost basically switched the older generation to get smartphones and to get around to be able to navigate apps. So we haven't, because of, I guess, the WhatsApp penetration and the penetration of social media, mm. it's made the adoption of our system much less easier because they understand what an app is, understand how to navigate it. But also our approach is very much towards agricultural businesses. So I think one of the misconceptions that, might get out there about us at, at times is that, yeah, we're not for a guy who's doing a garden in his backyard. Mm, we're for an yeah. agricultural business, someone who's farming as a business and basically wants to move product in bulk. So it, it basically, technology allows us to scale. It allows us to impact more people in a shorter space of time. I mean, it's been about three years that we've been running this pilot, but we're trading in about six provinces already. And wow. we're moving product from different provinces, moving it into Joburg. We've impacted over 3,000 farmers. Sure. And these are all people that we're engaging with on the platform. Yeah. Someone is sitting in Mustina or in Toyando, and they're engaging with a buyer that they otherwise would have never met. You know, they can get on the platform, they list their product, and if one of the big supermarket chains is going to bid for their product. Yeah. And as soon as they bid and they agree on a price, Imperial is able to go pick up and even if that farmer doesn't have a nice fancy truck or coal truck that can pick up their produce, because of what we've built in, in on our logistics platform and our partnership with Imperial, we're able to connect someone in a remote place such as Mosina with the company in Santin, and they can be able to buy in bulk from that particular farmer. Mm. But not only on the buying side, we're doing a lot with the impact funding because yeah. we realize that there's a lot of money being thrown into agriculture, but there's very little accountability for that mm. money in terms of which go in terms of the long-term objectives it's all nice and good to cut a ribbon like we've seen a lot of Mm -hmm. and then give a Mm -hmm. a stipend but as soon as the stipend runs out that farmer doesn't know how much they need to plant on a bed to make how much money you know and then they begin selling off the the agricultural equipment they begin selling off all those things that were bought for them so we worked on a 
are basically on a solution with the funding side that allows funders to get onto a funded dashboard that we've built and say, look, my mandate is to fund, for example, let's say a black female farmer who is doing over 2 million rand in revenue. Our system will show them all that farmers who meet that criteria. So a mm. farmer in a remote place like Tuyando or in Kwakwa can get access to funding without even lifting a finger as long as they, they need to focus on putting the seed on the ground and planting the right stuff. Wow. So we put the farmer in a position where they don't have to worry about market, they don't have mm. to worry about logistics, they don't have to worry about funding, mm. they don't have to worry about quality assurance, and that's why, for that reason, we do not compromise and we do not play when it comes to quality of product. So the one thing we hold our farmers to is the quality of product. So we take care of everything else, and they need to focus on making sure that they plant the right stuff, because if they don't, they then give a bad name to the platform, and then we end up being a platform that was built to sort of save the little guy or just help the poor struggling guy, which we not we don't want to be. We want to build a commercial value proposition yeah. around the business. So that that's the only way that this will be sustainable. The big buyers need to buy from us because they understand the value proposition and they know that they'll get good prices and they'll get good quality product, not as a we're trying to sort of do a favor or donate mm. type of thing. It's a fascinating model. It's almost like an impact bond instrument uh, that you've built around uh, around uh, the ecosystem. But the fact that you you know you're running a great business that is also affecting systems change is just it's astonishing. It's a that's a really great achievement. Josh, can you tell yeah. me a little bit more about the research and what you've learned? This is a this is this report is fresh off the press, right? It's um, literally two or three weeks old. Can you tell me more about the report? Sure, I, I never thought I'd say hot off the press about <laughs> research. But hot off the PDF press, yeah. So, so maybe to take us back about why we did it. Yeah, sure. Um, there are a couple of narratives that were growing that we were worried about. Mm. One, there was a growing body of research internationally that was saying older entrepreneurs are, are more successful mm -hmm. without really explaining what that meant. Second, we were seeing a lot of energy um, talk about small business and growth, but no one really explaining where the pipeline of these entrepreneurs that everyone thought needed to be there would come from. Mm. And there was this vacuum between the world of education, small business development, uh, youth policy, and stuff was just getting lost in the middle. Mm. And then our, our basic thesis for the NZSHA program is that we need to get more young people who have leadership potential to choose entrepreneurship as a career over other choices. Mm. And there's a huge cultural deficit in that regard globally, mm. but Africa is no different, where parents think that the way to earn a living is to become one of the traditional careers, doctor, yes. accountant, lawyer, et cetera. Yeah. So all of that combined to say, how do we actually influence policy? Mm. And um, we then went about learning how to do that. Mm. And we spent essentially two years building a bottom-up policy position that resulted in this thing called the very young entrepreneur scenario for Africa. Mm. And it's not to say that all the other positions are wrong. It's just to say that this position is underinvested versus its potential. So it is obvious that if you're more experienced, you'll be better at something. Sure. And that's essentially what all these other papers have said. And if you talk to the academics who wrote them, they've never said that we've said anything other than that. Yes, yes. The point so is, how do you become entrepreneurially experienced? And the grooming ground for that has been business traditionally. Yes. And what we're saying is that there aren't enough job opportunities to create enough people who will have enough skills to become entrepreneurs quickly enough. You have to learn while becoming an entrepreneur. It has mm. to become a career. Mm. 
Many of the entrepreneurs we respect today are entrepreneurs by career. We call them serial entrepreneurs, mm. but that's actually not what they are. Mm. They're career entrepreneurs. That's mm. all they've ever done. And they built an experience base by just doing that. Many have been successful being in business first and then hopping over, but there's another way to build that. So the very, entrepre- very young entrepreneur story research says, uh, we wanted to explore that. And then we came up with the, the big discovery. Mm. And the big discovery was that young people are better at hiring other young people. Mm. Okay. And we've proven it. Essentially, that's the big thing that you need to take away. People want to see jobs created for young people. Yes. And they're expecting governments and others to do it. But what we've proven through data and Caritas's put, uh, contribution to the fellowship and their data is material, is to say of the 122 young entrepreneurs we've backed, they have created over 2,000 jobs. So first of all, that's remarkable. But second, half the jobs of those 2,000 were for people under 25. Mm. There is no collective industry that can kind of speak statistics like that about creating opportunities for other young people. And kids hire kids, adults hire adults, you hire Mm. your peer group. Mm. So the research tries to unpack all of these things, but that's the, the primary takeaway. And if we can increase the share of wallet within the entrepreneurship world that transitions to entrepreneurship, Mm of people of high potential and we can support them to That's, explore it as a career. The correlation the long term job. the yeah. long term job stuff is going to be remarkably different. Mm. And so that's the third scenario of the ones we paint. And it's called the very young entrepreneur scenario. And we just it's almost like what happened with early childhood development. If you remember but maybe two decades ago everyone went, oh we should actually like start doing stuff with really young kids if we want things later on to be better. But people kept just saying tertiary education is where it's at. And you realize, like, if you don't get that early stage brain and other motor function and all these other elements right, then you're just hoping you're going to get it wrong. Sure. So this is just about let's invest earlier, a greater share of wallet. Yeah. And so the questions you now need to ask are, what are, how many people under 25 are in some accelerator or incubator program? Support, you know, you need to start carving this idea of youth up mm. to not just be sub 35 we need to be much sure. more intentional about sub 25s so sure. that's really interesting insight and that's available on the ala website or the nc show website as NC well nzshaprize.org yeah. okay carry this i'm aware that you're super busy and you've been so generous with your time i just maybe as a parting thought if there are very young entrepreneurs that are are listening uh, to the show right now what is the first piece of advice you give them for there's so much that's said around the importance of networks and the importance of funding and the importance of refining your idea and education and all of these things. But there's a step sometimes before that. What, what was the, yeah. the catalyst for you personally that got you on the, on the road to success? Look, I think the key thing um, is to start. I think a lot of people who want to go into entrepreneurship, talk about it, like stop talking, just start. Right? Yeah. I think start. The second important thing I would say is pivot. So usually your first business that you start with might not be, is not going to be the one you end up with. And even if it is, it's not going to be in the same form that it started as. Mm. So the, my first, everyone would be to start. That is the most important thing. So start and get in the trenches. And then secondly, yeah, you need to pivot. And also I think there, there needs to be a steering away of this conversation about funding. I think there's mm. too much, too many people, you need fund. You don't need funding to start. You need to start. Like you start, you just need yourself, 
register a business, set up a business model and think about it and whatever. Even if it's just you, you need to start and you need to keep pivoting. And while you pivot, make sure that the market is telling you what to do. You know, a lot of people say, what Kula is a good business and the business model is impressive, but actually that business model didn't come from me, nor did it come from my co-founder. It came from our users. We listen to them, we hear what they have, and they tell us what they want to use or what they would use, and we build it. And that way, you can't really get it wrong if you're building, because yeah. ultimately, you know, we're not building Kula. I'm not building Kula for myself to use. I'm building it for, for farmers, for, for buyers. So the buyers need to drive that process. And that's why we've been in, in such an extended pilot, because we understand that the platform we're building is not for us. It needs to, it needs to be driven by the end users. And that's why yeah. in our pilot, we invited all the major role players who will be our users and they've driven how we built it. So the key thing is to start and to pivot. And more than anything else, do not give up. I think yeah. that's, that should be the fiber through, throughout. I think I've, right. I've gone through periods where I really thought this was the end and this entrepreneurship thing is not going to work. But that constant perseverance eventually things come through. As long as you keep pivoting and you're listening to a client, then you will land on something eventually. So I think start, pivot, and do not give up because the continent needs you. I think there's so many issues. Like we need people to start more and and also don't start a high impact business, like solve a big problem. That's another thing for me is that whatever business you start, just think about the problem you're solving. You know, if you're doing an app to find a cat, then you really need that's not a big problem you know you need to really yeah pick a big problem and and and, and yeah and start pivot while you're at it and don't give up sweet there's absolute gold there thank you i'm going to pop uh the cooler website into the show notes is it okay for people to reach out and connect with you on linkedin as well yeah yeah no problem no problem you're a star all right you better get back to building that app and, and changing the world thank you so much for your time i'm going to finish off with josh quickly but uh yeah we look forward to, i look forward to connecting with you in real life when we go back to some sense of normality <laughs> cheers thanks man thanks for having me thanks mate cheers. so josh just as a, a final for people who have heard some of what we've spoken about in terms of this this incredible ecosystem that's been built from the ground up to support and and have long-term sustainable impact in the you know kind of in the same vein as as cooler and businesses like that where do they start if they want to find out more or download more information what books should they read what what resources should they connect with and and you know what would you recommend thanks for the question the there are three things i think people should do the first is it's a personal one you need to make sure you have in your back pocket stories of excellence in Africa of the things you want people to be mm. that aren't American or other international stories. Mm. And if you don't have them, when you say who is an example of this kind of thing that you think is something important mm -hmm. and you don't have an African example, you failed yourself. Mm. And people need to go out and find those stories and they exist. And there are some great books around that, but we're developing some specific responses to that in programs like our hall of fame, which is, young people, uh, people who are now older than 35 that started before Rooted they were 25. The, yeah. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is I just have a clear message for parents and we're expecting too much from schools and other systems for how we're going to navigate career paths for our kids. 
and you need to think very carefully about that. And and we've started a community of exploring careers with a focus on how do you talk to a kid about entrepreneurship as one of the options. Mm -hmm. And I'd encourage people to join that community. And there's a series of content that you get taken through. And then the third, everyone needs to engage schools. Uh, um, if you're if if you're currently a parent to a school or you're involved in a school or an alumni of a school and you care about that school, you need to engage them in how they're preparing people for the future of work. And if they're not being intentional uh, about alternative careers and alternative pathways to income and livelihood, not about the traditional success factors that we have, then they're failing you, your family, and the future of the continent. And again, we have a, a, a really robust program for teachers. Um, and so at the nzshaprize.org website, you'll find a couple of communities. There's one for teachers, one for investors, one for policymakers, and one for parents. And we're all trying to get those key actors around young people to act differently. Yes. And I think that's the opportunity. It's the secondary actor that influences young people in each case that I think is where the big lever is. We keep waiting for what other people can and can't do, but focus on those surrounding influences and watch young people fly, I think. Uh, whether you like it or not, I am going to put your LinkedIn details in the show notes as well because I want people to pester you. Uh, we'll put those other URLs in uh, too. You've been an absolute star. Thanks for taking the time out and uh, I look forward to a post-lockdown uh, coffee. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.